Today on Inland Journal and the Inland Journal podcast, what an interesting few weeks it's been in the presidential race with the reemergence of Joe Biden and the contrast between Biden and Bernie Sanders. On Tuesday, Washington and Idaho voters will have a chance to weigh in on that race. They are two of the six states participating in what is now called Big Tuesday. We'll have NPR coverage of Big Tuesday on both KPBX and KSFC. We talked on Wednesday with Washington's top election official, Secretary of State Kim Wyman. So Washington's presidential primary traditionally had been in May. You were one of the people arguing to move it up to March. How do you feel about that now? <laughs> What's the old adage? Be careful what you wish for because you might get it. Um, yes, I mean, I've advocated for many years that a May primary was just too late in the cycle and really was meaningless in the party nominating process. And that if we moved it earlier to, say, March, um, Washington might actually have an influence or an impact on the outcome. And, well, after yesterday, uh, that's starting to become true. So I think next Tuesday um, we are going to be having our primary in conjunction with the number of other states. So I think we're one of the biggest on uh, March 10th. And I think that we're going to get some national uh, coverage, certainly on election night. And I think we're going to see candidates, uh, the two remaining candidates come and campaign here. Have Has Washington seen er, a lot of early voting numbers? I, I, we've heard complaints about people who said, you know, we sent in our ballots a week or two early and then my candidate dropped out of the race. Yeah, it, it's hard to gauge uh, in terms of of the return ballots, if people are holding on to them or not. We have certainly had a few calls from voters who said, oh, shoot, I voted and my candidate just dropped out. Can I have a new ballot? No, you can't. Once you put your ballot in a drop box or the mailbox, you have voted and there's no way to uh, to give you a second chance on that. Um, but uh, we've, we are probably going to break a million ballots returned statewide, which will be about 25 percent just under uh, statewide. So that's pretty good, solid returns, in my opinion. Um, right now, that means we're tracking for at least 50 percent turnout um, next week total uh, when we certify the election. And I think that there's heavy interest. And now that we actually have a real race on the Democratic side between Biden and Sanders that, um, and Warren, you're going to see uh, a lot of activity on the Democratic side, I would imagine. Uh, so um, it's uh, it's exciting and, and nerve wracking all at once. But I think that uh, voters now don't have to worry too much about um, kind of knowing which candidates are in the race. You know, Warren, I know there's a little bit of talk that she you know, may or may not uh, step back or step or suspend her campaign. So voters should just factor that into their decision making. The flip side of that, though, is I would encourage voters to turn in their ballots. Um, uh, and if they're going to do it, uh, turn it in to a post office, I do it earlier rather than later, uh, just because we're trying to mitigate any um, disruption in service that we might have from the, you know, potential work, work um, impacts of the coronavirus. If you have a, a post office that has to be shut down to be cleaned, and that happened in federal way last week, um, that can disrupt the service. That could happen on Election Day. Um, so my recommendation actually is uh, to find a drop box, ballot drop box, and um, drop your ballots in there if you're going to wait closer to Election Day. You've been quoted as saying you're not voting in this primary. Why? <laughs> um, I'm actually, not only am I voting, I already have voted. Uh, I did uh, did vote last Thursday. And um, because on the Republican side of the ballot, there is only one candidate. And so the first time in my voting history, uh, in a public election where you have to declare your party affiliation, there's no possible way for me to have a secret ballot Um 
in a lot of ways. Everybody's going to assume that if I return a ballot as a Republican that I'm voting for Trump, which is fine. Um, but I tend to not want people to know who I'm rooting for or who I'm backing or what issues I, you know, how I feel on a, an issue from, you know, guns to abortion to uh, same-sex marriage. I stay neutral because I have to oversee the election. And um, what I expected to happen happened. Uh, we had some uh, partisan folks who started making accusations that I was a Trump supporter. And the only way I can refute that or, or prove that is to disclose how I voted. And um, that tips my hand on to who I'm rooting for. And so I chose to not pick a party uh, box. And mostly everybody thinks that this is some sort of commentary on, on President Trump. It is not. Um, the reason I'm not checking a box is that I believe that we should have a third option. We could have an unaffiliated choice where voters could not declare a party and, and vote for either can, whatever candidate they wanted. The counties in the state would report those results alongside the Democrat and Republican returns. And we did that in 1996 as well as 2000. Voters love it because a lot of voters do not want to publicly declare. And so in some ways, if I'm protesting anything, it's, it's protesting the fact that the legislature took away the unaffiliated option. And I'd like to see it come back. Well, I think one senator is trying to do that. Senator Oban from uh, Western Washington <laughs> is looking at doing that. Good. Well, we tried. Um, I've had that request legislation in in the 2015, 2017, and the 2019 sessions, and it's it's odd. It never gets out of committee. So reporters are having that same argument. We're seeing a lot of it uh, with reporters. I know Peter Baker from the New York Times is saying, you know, I don't vote and I don't take positions on a lot of things. And it's brought up that same issue for reporters, that we don't want people to know how we're voting because it would taint the, the, the public's eyes as to, you know, how we write our stories. Well, and, and this is why I fought so hard for the unaffiliated option. Um, there are uh, many people across the state have, that have a wide swath of reasons why they don't want to publicly say they are a Democrat or a Republican. It could be that they're worried that their employer might find out. I know here in Olympia, that's a, a real hot topic. I work for a partisan official, and I don't want them to know I'm in the other party. Um, we have people that might not want their church members to know. They might not want their union members to know. So there are a whole lot of reasons why people in Washington don't like to have that public uh, party affiliation. And I get it and understand it. And, uh, you know, for me, I've, I've been a public Republican for 20 years because I, I went for the appointment 20 years ago for county auditor. So I'm comfortable that people know I'm a Republican. And I know that that, you know, in some parts of the states plays well and some it doesn't. But the cold hard reality is I, I want to be neutral in overseeing the election. And um, it's not possible to do that with this election. So I want to be clear for those people who don't want to don't want to check a Democrat or Republican box and yet they still fill out which candidate they want. Are their votes counted? Well, that's the other part. There is a consequence. And so I'm not trying to advocate or encourage anyone to do this or not do this. But um, if you don't check a party box, the county will probably send you a letter and give you a second chance to do so, which for some voters, that will just make them mad. <laughs> um, but uh, if you don't check a party affiliation, then the, then your ballot will be sent to the county canvassing board and they will probably reject that ballot um, along with any others that don't check it. Because, again, that's the whole point. Um, and a lot of people, I might, might add this too, many people have been frustrated by the party choice being on the outside of the envelope. That is to um, give the county election officials the ability to separate the ballots into three piles. 
Democrat, Republican, and no no oath. And the reason we do that is that you can't, as a voter, cross over, like say that you're a Democrat, but then cross over and vote for a Republican or vice versa. And the way we can do that and keep your secrecy is putting those in those piles, and then we anonymize your ballot by taking the security envelope out of the one with your name on it, and that we keep it in that pile of Democrat or Republican, and then those ballots are counted. And uh, I've heard many, uh, many of our callers who have accused county officials or postal workers um, that they may try to, like, throw your ballot away. Um, I can assure you that doesn't happen. On the postal side, it would be a federal um, offense. They could lose their job and go to prison. And on the uh, county side, it would also be uh, a felony uh, activity. But more importantly, when the ballots come into the county, uh, the county, the first thing they do is just count them as they receive them from the ballot boxes and the post office. So they, they actually have to account for every single ballot they receive. And if it's not counted, it needs to be um, listed as rejected and why it's rejected by the canvassing board only. And if a voter has any concern about their ballot not being counted or received, they can go on to the site votewa.gov. And you can go into your own voter record and you can see if your ballot has been received um, and whether or not it was counted. And so anyone that is, has any doubts that their ballot got back to the county election officials can go ahead and do that and they can have that assurance. And if your ballot hasn't been received, then I would ca contact your county election officials or the Secretary of State's office and let us know and we will follow up on it. Kim Wyman is Washington's Secretary of State. Guns are the center of a legal fight pitting a North Idaho community against itself. Correspondent Nick Deshay reports. War Memorial Field in Sandpoint is pretty quiet this time of year. People sitting in parked cars, engines running, a few dog walkers. But come August, the small park overlooking North Idaho's Lake Ray will host up to 4,000 concert goers for the festival at Sandpoint, as it's done since 1983. Last summer, Scott Herndon had a ticket to see the Avett Brothers. But he wasn't there for the band. He was there with his holstered 380 handgun to challenge the festival's rule prohibiting firearms. And he was recording the whole thing. How's it going, guys? Good. Good. He didn't get in. So festival has a rule, no weapons within the venue. So two options here. You can take it secured in your vehicle, or we can take you over and refund your money to you. But Herndon didn't go easy. He asked the security guard to cite state law. He lectured him about the Republican form of government and he helped kick off a legal fight in this town of 8,000 people. It's not Herndon's first legal tussle. In 2010, as the Bonner County jail chaplain, he sued the county when he was barred from ministering to inmates after he advocated for a Priest Lake murder suspect. The sides eventually settled. I met Herndon at a gas station outside of Sandpoint. I actually really just care about the law. And it's not like I love to do lawsuits, but I actually really care when governments do not abide by the law. After Herndon posted his video to YouTube, the county sheriff and commissioners sued the city for allowing what they consider an unconstitutional gun ban. The city pushed back, arguing they're not banning anything. Festival organizers lease the land from the city, and private property rights allow the festival to stop guns from coming in. In other words, the case pits two fundamental rights in Idaho against each other, the Constitution versus private property, with guns at the center. Bonner County Sheriff Daryl Wheeler brought the issue to county commissioners. I heard the voice of the citizens here living in Bonner County. We take the Second Amendment and that right very seriously. If you look at our Constitution that was adopted in 1889, it's so strong. The Second Amendment is, is codified in our, in our state Constitution, and 
in our state laws, and it's very important that we have that right to protect ourselves and our families. Wheeler argues that the state law book, specifically as he likes to remind, Section 18-3302J, allows gun owners to take their firearms onto public property. Sandpoint Mayor Shelby Roggenstad and Council President Shannon Williamson wouldn't comment for the story, referring questions to their lawyer, Peter Erbland, with the Lake City Law Group in Coeur d'Alene. It, it is uh, a property rights issue from our standpoint because when property is leased to another party, that party has the right to possess and control that property and can exclude uh, persons from it. The city doesn't take a position on whether or not firearms should be excluded from Memorial Field. That's entirely up to the festival. In an email, festival office manager Amy Beistelein said the festival will continue to ban firearms. She said some artists write into their contracts that guns aren't allowed at their concerts. That, and there's alcohol being consumed by a large number of people. Herndon, who filmed his encounter, dismisses all concerns but his own. So for me, there will be no compromise. And if the county compromises and it's unacceptable to me, then we will file our our lawsuit, whether it's in state court or federal court. And we will work toward a resolution that meets our demands, which is that as long as they are going to have a festival at a public park, then they will have to admit people that are keeping and bearing firearms. In the meantime, the people of Sandpoint are stuck in the middle. Kay Walker was walking by the park one unseasonably warm day in late February. She's followed the issue, and she says she's not against guns, but she thinks the festival should prohibit them. It's, it's tough because I, because I come from here. I come from decades of here. So there's always been firearms. But she says these days, guns are more than what they once were. I don't see a problem with people carrying firearms, except that now there's a conflict. And so now I don't feel safe. Because I don't think there's common sense in carrying your firearms. I think somebody has a mm, bone to pick. And Sandpoint residents are on the hook for legal fees from both sides. The Sandpoint Reader newspaper reported the city has paid $11,000 for legal work. The county also hired an attorney to the tune of $36,000. A trial date has not been set. I'm Nick Deshay in Sandpoint, Idaho. We stay in Idaho for our next story, which is about how the Gem State is preparing for the coronavirus. Idaho doesn't yet have a confirmed case as of Wednesday morning, but it's only a matter of time, says state epidemiologist Christine Hahn. On Wednesday, Hahn and Governor Brad Little held a briefing in Boise for reporters. Although coronavirus has not been detected in our state, we do expect cases here. Uh, I think we've been fortunate that we have not been amongst the first states, and we're very fortunate that we don't have what's going on in Washington state, our our neighbor uh, right now. But we've been watching that very closely, and we are learning and communicating with Washington and with other states, with CDC daily on this um, growing and changing situation. At the time of this press conference, Hahn said tests had been conducted on six people who showed symptoms. All results were negative. But more tests were scheduled both on Wednesday and for the foreseeable future. Hahn says it's unrealistic to think Idaho will escape unscathed. What we can do is slow the virus down. And how that helps is we can do, it helps in several ways. We can reduce the impact and burden on the health care system. Hospitals, urgent care centers, emergency departments, clinics, um, long-term care facilities, they cannot handle a huge sudden influx of a lot of ill people. So by working to do the common sense measures that the governor and the director just mentioned, we can protect the vulnerable among us by keeping this virus from spreading person to person. 
Hahn says Idaho has been able to test a small number of patient samples at a state lab near Boise, but she says it won't be able to keep up if the demand for coronavirus tests continues to increase. So we are requiring a public health process to, uh, for approval for testing because we just don't have that many test kits and we want to save those for the highest risk for the most ill. But we are, um, have been assured that more tests are on the way, and we are also uh, understood just uh, yesterday that the FDA has authorized some um, other sectors. Um, University of Washington, for example, apparently can do testing now. We are w- working hard to learn more about that and to see whether Idaho providers could avail themselves of that testing ava- eventually for their patients. For now, Hahn says Idaho is playing the waiting game and taking care of little details. This time is allowing us to educate communities, get employers to figure out work from home plans that could be put into place if needed, uh, schools uh, planning for school children's safety and school closures if needed. That is all important work and we have a little bit of time to plan that and the slower this goes, the more time we'll have. Governor Brad Little announced he has created a coronavirus working group to oversee his state's response. It met for the first time on Wednesday. For now, Little says the risk to Idahoans is low, and he's urging people to employ basic hygiene methods, such as washing hands, to protect themselves from exposure. From what we know about it, the 2019 novel coronavirus should not be a concern for parents of healthy children. But for our older population and those with compromised health conditions, coronavirus, just like the common flu, should could be very harmful or deadly, especially since it's occurring during the flu season. Idaho has developed a new online resource so people can access up-to-date information. You can find that at coronavirus.idaho.gov. And now from one public health threat to another, opioid addiction. The Washington State Health Care Authority is running Starts With One. That's a media campaign aimed at keeping young people from using opioids. Opioids are now one of the leading causes of injury-related deaths in Washington state. More people die from overdose than from car crashes. Between 2012 and 2016, more than 3,300 lives in Washington were lost to opioid overdose. We are all part of the solution. Your choices matter. If you are prescribed an opioid pain medication, talk with your doctor about other options and don't share your prescriptions with other people. It starts with you. Learn more at getthefactsrx.com. It can be something as simple and and as innocuous as somebody saying that they have a headache and somebody reaching into their purse and, and giving them prescription medication that was used for their migraines. Alicia Spencer is the coalition coordinator for the Shadle Prevention and Wellness Coalition in Spokane. Opioids are controlled substances for a reason and usually have heavy um, and rapidly occurring addiction rates. And so what can seem as an innocent or even a helpful thing to do very often leads to people having uh, sustained addiction and spiraling into an out of control uh, situation with opioid use. We need to educate people that the prescription is for the person that it's prescribed to and this isn't about sharing medication. So this seems to be a campaign that hits on several different things. It's, it's, it's how to talk with your kids about it. It's how to get rid of the opioids that you have that are in your, uh, in your cabinet that you're not being able to use. So talk about sort of that broad perspective of, of, of trying to hit it from a lot of different angles. Part of the campaign that I am most 
um, proud of um, is the fact that it is about empowering everybody, um, especially if you don't have somebody in your immediate family or circle. It's very easy to kind of be a little dismissive of, of the opioid crisis, and that's something that's happening to them, where this is in a lot of ways is something that we as a community can all participate in a lot of little steps to help prevent um, future misuse or abuse and can also make sure that what we do have in our homes is being properly disposed of. For example, uh, there are a lot of people that still assume that if you have expired prescription medication, you should flush them down the toilet. And especially living in our region over the Spokane Aquifer, that is something that we want to remind people again and again, please do not flush your prescription medication um, because they are finding trace amounts of those types of drugs in fish, in, in plant life, in the river systems themselves. And that's the water that we were trying to drink. So definitely, even from an environmental protection perspective, um, good stewardship says that we need to find proper ways of disposing of these medications. There are several pharmacies and law enforcement agencies in Spokane County where you can take your expired medications for safe disposal. You can find a list of those at takebackyourmeds.com. Org. Alicia Spencer says the Starts With One campaign is aimed not only at young people, but also at their friends and family and at older adults. Older adults having maybe more medication on hand at any given time, blood pressure medication, diabetes medication, etc., and the young adults that may have access to that. So it's, it's educating all the generations with the um, targeted objective of reducing the the youth opioid use. But obviously, then there's the um, additional benefit that if we all are taking better care, securing our medication, disposing of it when it becomes expired, disposing of it properly so it can't be misused by somebody else, it's going to have an impact beyond just youth. Um, But that is the stated objective of the campaign. You can find more at GetTheFactsRx.com. Dot com, where you can learn about how to start a conversation with your sons and daughters about opioid use and misuse. I think a lot of people assume that they don't need to have the conversation until much later. They're like, oh, that's a high school thing, or that's maybe we should have that conversation before somebody goes to college. And as simple as, you know, holding hands and looking both ways before you cross the street. It's don't take medication that isn't prescribed to you. Um, Don't take medication less uh, trusted, you know, mom or dad gives you the amount the doctor says when they're real little. So um, it can hurt you. We would have to go to the hospital. It can give you a stomach ache. That's a conversation you can have with a six, seven, eight year old to start that conversation to prevent, um, Accidental overdoses, kind of like what we did with Mr. Yuck stickers when I was a little kid. Um, But just as they get older in those very age-appropriate ways, which is why the tools provided by the Starts With One campaign are so amazing, is it does give you some of those key points to hit, especially preteen and teens when they think they're invincible and they can do anything. What are some straightforward facts that you can give a youth to counteract maybe some of that peer pressure or online pressure that it's that this is fine and acceptable? Alicia Spencer is the coalition coordinator for the Shadal Prevention and Wellness Coalition in Spokane. Find more at GetTheFactsRx.com. 
Inland Journal is Spokane Public Radio's weekly public affairs program. It airs every Thursday on the radio, and you can find the podcast anytime at spokanepublicradio.org. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or Google Play. Thanks for joining us. I'm Doug Nadvornik.